Hi everyone, it's Joe here, and today I'm going to talk to you about what I've learned over the last seven years of being a podcaster and the last kind of 18 months of being professional full-time with it. Let me get this caveat out of the way first of all. These are just my opinions, and you may have differing opinions. If you do, I'd love to hear from you. I'm always interested in a conversation about these things. There's as much art as there is science in this, and everyone has their own way of doing things. This is just what I think. So if you want to get in touch with me, then at Joe Ressington on Twitter or extras.show slash contact. So with that out of the way, the first part of this is the recording space, where you're going to actually be when you record. Now, most people will be looking to do this in their home office, let's say. Now, the ideal office has got no clutter in it, a lovely hardwood floor, minimalist decor, lots of hard surfaces everywhere. Well, unsurprisingly, that is a terrible studio. It's a terrible studio because all those hard surfaces create echo, and that is what you don't want on your recordings. What you ideally want is to have as dead a sound as possible. And by that, I mean no echo, no reverb, no anything else apart from your voice. And so there are a few ways of getting rid of that echo. The first one is just with basic physics. If you surround yourself with soft, fluffy things, then they will absorb the reverberations, the echo, and make it sound better. So just generally lots of stuff and clutter is a good start. So not being tidy, not having perfect hard surfaces everywhere, that can help. Having a carpet or a rug rather than a wooden floor, that's a great start. Even getting things like cushions and pillows or duvets, comforters, blankets, whatever, and just trying to cover up the surfaces and just trying to get as much of that bulk into the room with you. And towels and bed sheets, just anything soft. Now, if you want to spend some money on this, the first thing that you can do is get some acoustic foam panels. They're usually around about a foot by a foot or 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters. And they come in various colors. Black is the most common. And you can either get kind of a, a bobbly pattern on them, or sometimes they have like a row of teeth, like in a triangle pattern. It doesn't really matter what you go for. It's just that same basic physics principle that they are soft and foamy and will absorb sound and reverberations. So you can stick them all over your walls. Obviously, that doesn't look great. You can do it quite artistically if you're not like me, and then it can look okay, but it's generally not going to get spousal approval. What you can do if you're a little bit handy and practical is build yourself some sort of room divider. That's something that Drew did, and there's a blog post that we can link to telling you how he did it. And that is basically the same principle as sticking these foam panels on your wall, but it's just on something that can be folded away and looks a bit neater when you're not recording. Of course, if you want to get really serious, then setting yourself up in a dedicated space for recording is the best. Now, if you're in America, you might have a big enough closet to do that. And thankfully, closets tend to be full of clothes, which are soft and absorb sound. And so it's, that is a great place to start. Now, I hope Elle doesn't mind me saying this, but that's where she records in her closet. And I think it sounds great on her recordings. Or you could build yourself a little room like I have. Uh, my room isn't ideal because it's quite small and I've got bed sheets hanging on the walls of it. 
it's I'm not very happy with it to be honest. I have ordered some acoustic panels. I've got some up. They helped a little bit, but I need to put some more up. So I need to get some more of them. And I'm hoping that I'll be happier with the sound after that. But it's kind of good enough for me. Um, and most importantly, being in London, it's very loud around here. There's a lot of planes and just general noise. And it, being in a dedicated room kind of helps with that. Now, the second topic is types of microphone. There are essentially two main types of microphone that you can buy. One of them is a condenser and the other is a dynamic. The main difference between a condenser microphone and a dynamic microphone is that the condenser requires power and is more sensitive and in ideal situations, and I stress ideal, it sounds better or can sound better than a dynamic mic. A dynamic mic doesn't require power and it is less sensitive and in an ideal studio setting might not necessarily sound as good as a good condenser. Some typical examples are the Blue Yeti and the Blue Snowball. They are condenser mics and they are incredibly popular and they are a terrible microphone for most people getting into podcasting. I have got the Rode NT1, which I'm talking to you on now. I'm Again, I'm not massively happy with it, but it's doing the job and uh, I'm happy enough. The most common dynamic mic is a Shure SM58. That is what you'll see stand-up comedians and singers generally in a live situation using. They are great microphones and you could do worse than that. I know some guys who do professional podcasting with them. It's not necessarily my first choice, but they're okay. Um, the Rode Podcaster, which is used on BST Now, uh, Benedict and Alan have both got one. Uh, that's an okay mic. That's USB and dynamic. Most of the Jupiter Broadcasting crew have got uh, an Electrovoice RE320. So that is basically everyone apart from Chris. He has an RE20, which is basically a better version of that because, you know, he's the boss. He has to have the best, obviously. So some of the pros and cons of these microphones. So the condenser, the pros are that it sounds better in a perfect setup, in my opinion. Some people may disagree with that, but I think it does. And it's also more forgiving of poor mic technique. So by poor mic technique, I mean, if you kind of drift away a little bit like this, or you're kind of talking around the side of it, it doesn't sound great, but it's, it's kind of not as bad as it can be with a dynamic mic where you have to have really good mic technique. Because if you drift away from it, even a little bit like this, I'm kind of a few inches away, the drop-off in volume is a lot more than with a condenser. So it's kind of more forgiving if you don't have a good technique. The cons of a condenser mic are that it picks up everything in the room and beyond the room. And I mean everything. If I shuffle my feet around, that's just rubbing on the carpet, you can hear that quite clearly. With a dynamic mic, you'll hear a lot less of that. And also the echo factor, if you haven't got a perfect room, then it's going to pick up a lot more of that echo versus your voice, which you want it to pick up. And I tend to fiddle with things while I'm recording as well. I've kind of got a bit better at that, but if there's anything like sweet wrappers, it picks up that really loudly or clicking pens or anything and anything outside as well. I live fairly near Heathrow and so sometimes there's planes going over that are really loud and my condenser mic picks that up quite loudly and I have to kind of pause and edit it out, which is very annoying. And noisy neighbours and sirens and dogs and just anything you can imagine that's outside, it will pick that up potentially. 
Whereas with the dynamic mic, it picks up more of your voice compared with that other noise that you don't want, including echo from your room. One of the main disadvantages is that it requires good mic technique. You have to stay in the sweet spot. So I haven't got a dynamic mic here to demonstrate that, but if you drift away from it, then it can give quite a different sound and it just sounds a bit weird. So you need to kind of be much better at working the mic. Now, whether you go for a condenser mic or a dynamic, you have two choices at that point. Either you go for a USB microphone or you go for a microphone with an XLR connection, which you then need to plug into an interface, which then plugs into the computer. Whereas with a USB mic, it's much simpler. Just a mic, a USB cable, and a computer. However, if you buy a USB-only microphone like the standard Yeti, you are limited in that it has to be a USB connection. You can't use it in any other situation. You can't upgrade the mic and keep your interface. It's cheaper to buy a USB mic than a mic and an interface, but I think it's kind of like buy cheap, buy twice situation. If you buy an interface that's good enough, and even a fairly cheap one, less than $100, I think um, the one that the a lot of the crew use is a Zoom U22. I think you can pick that up for £50 sometimes on Amazon. That will allow you to try out different microphones and upgrade microphones over time. Whereas with a USB mic, you're just stuck with it. Another big disadvantage of using a USB mic is that they tend to be quite noisy. Because if you're going to cram all of the electronics that make it an audio interface into a microphone, then the electronics are kind of too close to the the capsule, the thing that picks up the, the sound. And so often with Yetis, I get recordings from people who have used Yeti and it's full of kind of ground noise, um, just buzz and hiss. And it's it's just not ideal, really. Whereas you are less likely to suffer from that kind of thing with a proper USB interface and XLR microphone. One thing that's quite important, regardless of what kind of microphone you use, is a pop shield or pop filter, as they're sometimes called. That is to remove what we call plosives or the puh-puh sound. Now, if I come around and uh, get out of the way of my pop shield and I say Peter Piper, you'll hear how terrible that sounds. Whereas if in front of my pop shield I say Peter Piper, you can hardly hear that plosive sound. The two main types of those are the foam type, which is kind of a round foam thing that you push over the microphone. And they are somewhat effective They're definitely better than nothing and they look better if you're doing video because they obscure your face less than the other type, which is kind of the arm type, as I call it, that clamps to the mic stand and then it's a circle with a kind of thin layer of foam usually that you can move around and put in front of the microphone. Now, they're better if you're only doing audio, but maybe the foam round type that fits over the mic is better if you're doing video. So once you've got your gear sorted, you want to record your actual podcast. Now, I'm assuming that most people will be doing this remote. It's kind of a little bit different if you're doing it in person, but it's more likely that you're going to find compatible people online. And that's kind of how most Linux podcasts are done these days. So let's assume you're doing that. I'm not going to talk about any software specifically. I'm going to try and talk about principles here because it doesn't matter whether you're using something like Audacity or Ardor or Reaper or GarageBand or whatever it is you're using. The the principles are roughly the same. Now, what we always do when we record a podcast is 
make sure that we're all recording, and then we record some absolute silence. If you've ever caught Linux Unplugged Live, you'll have listened to this. Now, the reason that you record absolute silence is it's not actually silent. When you stop talking, you stop moving, you stop breathing, what you record is hiss, hum, buzz, all the stuff that you want rid of. Now, if you record a bit of absolute silence for, say, five or ten seconds, then you can use noise removal software to get rid of all that hiss that you don't want. I use Audacity for this, but there are tons of other ways of doing it, but the principle is always the same. You need to train the algorithm on the silence, the stuff that you want rid of, and then apply that to the whole recording. I cannot stress enough how important it is for this silence to be absolute silence. If you're training an algorithm on what you want to remove and you leave in scratching of neck beards or shuffling of feet or breathing, then it's going to detract from the sound quality of what is left after you've removed that noise. That's why whenever I come to do my noise removal, I listen to the absolute silence and make sure that it is just the hiss and bars and everything we want rid of and that there is no breathing or whatever. And I do that by turning the volume up to the absolute max that I can get it. And then I listen out for just even little sounds and try and select a bit of that audio that is just the silence that you want rid of. And that's why it's very important to capture that silence properly in the first place. So assuming that your recording all went well and everyone has sent you their FLAC or WAV file or whatever, and you line them up in Audacity or whatever software you're using, one of the first things that you'll probably want to do is EQ, equalization. There are various different types of EQ plugin, but the type that I like the best is parametric EQ, because that is a good visual representation of all of the audio frequencies. Generally speaking, on the left, that's going to be the low frequencies, and then on the right, it's going to be the higher frequencies. So usually they go way lower than humans can even hear to real sub bass on the left and then to really high pitched frequencies which if you're a little bit older like me you can't hear anymore now the basic eq that i use is just cutting the low end the real low end boom as i call it and we're talking about the real bassiness here of a person's voice the reason that i do that is because people who listen in a car to podcasts, which is quite common, their car stereos tend to have a lot of bass in them. And if there's too much rumbling bass in someone's voice, then it makes it very difficult to hear what they're actually saying, because it's just boom and rumble rather than the bits that you want to hear of their voice. Once I've done that, then it's a case of either boosting or cutting various frequencies, depending on the quality of the recording, how that compares to other people's voices. And I tend to be quite sparing with EQ because it's quite easy to mess it up and make it sound terrible. Drew tends to use more EQ than I do. And this is something that is a real art rather than science. This is what you want it to sound like. And the only real way to know what you want it to sound like is to experiment. And maybe there might be a particular frequency that you want rid of, or maybe someone's kind of muffled and you want to boost the high end. It's too individual for me to tell you exactly how to do it, unfortunately. The next thing is compression. Now, we're not talking about compression like 
zip compression or mp3 compression we're talking about dynamic compression that means that the parts where it's really loud will become quieter and the parts where it's really quiet will become louder and it makes everything roughly the same volume now much like with eq the right level of compression is very much subjective if you listen to the radio they tend to use a lot of compression and i mean a lot to the point where someone yelling at the top of their voice would be the same volume as if they're whispering into the microphone. There's real divided opinion on this. I tend to use quite a lot of compression, as I said, because I think about people driving in their cars again. If there are too many dynamics in the volume of the podcast, then it makes it difficult to listen to because you're constantly having to turn it up and then the next person speaks really loud and you have to turn that down again or someone might have inconsistency in the level that they are talking. And compression is a quick and dirty fix for that, but it does have a sound in of itself. So again, it's something you have to experiment with. The more you compress it, the more it's going to sound like radio. Some people like their mixes to, to breathe. They like it to have a lot of dynamic in it. But personally, I would rather use a little bit too much compression than not enough. And so the final thing is editing. Now, some people record live to tape, line it all up, export it, job done. That's not what I tend to do. I tend to go through and edit it properly. This could be a whole episode in of itself, how to actually do editing. But I'll give you a few tips that I always give people. The first is leave a beat. And by that, I mean... If you get to the end of a sentence, there's usually a cap between that sentence and the next sentence. If you listen to me now, I'm leaving pauses there because that's how humans talk. A very common mistake that people make is doing the cut at the end of a sentence, and then they cut from the beginning of the next sentence, and then they mash them together so that there is no gap between them. I'll give you a very quick example of that now. I'll now speak the next sentence, and then I'll speak the next sentence, and then I'll speak the next sentence. As I recorded that, I left a standard pause like you'd expect in any human conversation, but you hear how that sounded a bit weird. Well, that is a mistake that a lot of people make. It's almost become a style on YouTube now. There are huge YouTubers whose style is like that, and I cannot watch their videos because it's just too annoying. It's too frantic. Every time they edit they don't leave the beat in there and it's it's kind of younger people maybe get off my lawn whatever i don't know maybe people like to listen to audio that is edited like that i certainly don't another tip is don't cut off breaths i suppose i will give you an example of that now if you cut off the breath there you hear how that sounds a bit weird um the best way if you are doing a cut that involves a breath is to use fades fading in and fading out but again, that takes a bit of practice. The final tip when it comes to editing is listen back in full because things can go wrong. You may get through your edit and you think you've done everything perfectly and you export it and then you publish it and then you go to bed and then you wake up to a bunch of comments saying, well, what was that weird bit in there? Or how come there was no audio on the left channel for 20 minutes or whatever? I think that it is a disrespect to the audience to not listen back. How do you expect them to listen to your whole show if you can't even be bothered to do it yourself? Yes, it adds the length of the show to the process. So if you're doing a two-hour show, then that's two hours of listen back. But I think you've got to do it. 
And I think that's what sets apart people who care from people who don't. And my final tip here is don't mess with your recording machine. We in the Linux world like to distro hop a lot and try out different desktop environments and try new software all the time. I do not recommend that. I recommend, if if at all possible, whether it's a partition or a physical machine, get it so it's working and leave it that way. Get another laptop, pick up a cheap ThinkPad or something if you want to mess around with different distros. Set yourself up with a machine that works and just leave it that way because there is nothing more upsetting to the creative process than technical difficulties. You sit down to record something, like I decided to sit down and record this today. If I had had technical issues, it would have been very frustrating and would have probably led to me not recording this. Whereas I have a setup that I know works, I plug in my various equipment, start recording, simple. So don't mess with your recording machine. So well done if you made it this far with me rambling about all this stuff. Like I said at the beginning, these are just my opinions and there may be stuff that you can teach me. And if you can, great, get in touch. Let's start a conversation about this because I'm always willing to learn. And also let me know if you want more detail or specifics on any of the topics that I covered here at Joe Ressington on Twitter or extras.show slash contact.